The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art anytime. Hello, I'm Ben Luke. Welcome to The Week in Art. The name may be new, but the podcast remains much the same. You'll still hear the latest news, interviews and analysis of the big art world events every week from the art newspaper team. This week, we're looking at the art market. We talked to Rachel Pownall, a professor of finance at Maastricht University School of Business and Economics, about what the economic effects of the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic might mean for the art market. And the art newspaper's market editors, Anna Brady and Margaret Carrigan, reflect on the effects of this crisis on galleries and the response to it at different levels of the art world. Plus, we have the latest in our series looking at lonely works behind the doors of museums that are closed due to the coronavirus. This week, with the artist Sean Scully on Matisse's painting, The Moroccans. Before we begin, a reminder that you can read the art newspaper anywhere, anytime with our iPhone and iPad app. Visit the App Store, search for the art newspaper, and then you can install the free app. If you're a subscriber, all the app content is available as part of your subscription. And Art Market Eye, our monthly newsletter, is out now. You can sign up for that at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the newsletter link at the top right of the homepage. Now, this week at The Art Newspaper, we've been reporting in-depth about the effects of the coronavirus on the art market, both now and into the future. To begin with, we thought we'd get The Economist's view. Rachel Pownall is a Professor of Finance at Maastricht University School of Business and Economics in the Netherlands, who specialises in the art market. I spoke to Rachel on the line from Maastricht earlier this week. So, Rachel, before we start talking about the art market after uh, coronavirus, can we talk about about where we were before it? Um, There were some sort of gloomy economic outlooks, um, particularly relating to slowing growth in Europe, for instance. So to what extent was the art market in a good place before the coronavirus hit? Yeah, that's indeed the case during um 2019, we've seen already that the fine art market, uh, particularly for auction sales, had fallen globally um, around 8% or so. But this was predominantly driven by uh, sales in the USA and and actually also the UK. So you saw large um, drops in uh, auction sales um, over the over the whole year. Um, the largest drop in Europe was really the UK, which um, fell significantly about 17% at auction using data from Artnet relative to actually continental Europe, which didn't fare so badly at all because there was quite a switch between um, the market from the UK over to Europe. Um, so there were in places, indeed, it was a bit a bit gloomier than uh, previous years, indeed. And um, what about galleries? Was there any data which suggested how healthy the, the market for galleries was? Well, also looking at the Art Basel UBS report, they focus on this annual survey of looking at galleries. Um, and it was our experience as well from talking to a lot of galleries over the year um, that it was the top end of the market that was was falling actually relative to the the bottom end. So that was quite interesting because previously over uh, other uh, um, the years prior to 2019, we'd seen um, a more polarised art market, so more divergence between the top end of the market and the bottom end of the market. So last year was really the first year where you you felt that there was the the, the top end of the market was 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 dropping. 
Um, but the bottom end of the market actually wasn't doing as badly because you you saw that this, the uh, the volume of of sales was still very high, and and the volume of sales is also very important when we're considering how healthy then the the art market gen- generally is actually. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, obviously, the sort of in a, in a way the kind of big stories relating to the art market have related to fairs and fairs have become such a massively important part of the ecosystem obviously so we've had art basel hong kong and freeze have been cancelled um tfaf was curtailed um how important are these physical events to the to the art market now how much is sold at fairs um uh, how, we know that there's sort of some remote dealing that happens around with them. Some of them, some of the works are sold before the fair, and it's almost like they're just there for show. Um, but can galleries um, survive temporarily on on non physical dealing? Are there, you know, is there any evidence that the dealing around fairs is significant enough to keep galleries afloat, for instance? Well, that that's a really interesting question because, of course. <laughs> Um, the coronavirus has obviously curtailed or meant that we haven't been able to have um, social contact with 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 um, anybody in in just and there's lockdown in almost every every country globally. Um, so although there's been a a rush to move online in general, um, I think the answer to your question lies very much in the word that you've used there uh, on on the notion of it being a physical event um, and. Obviously, we have such a need to meet socially, um, but the importance of an art fair um, is in the in the presence and that actual physical activity of of being face to face, not only with the the artworks um, and seeing them live, as it were, but is also the opportunity to be able to have uh, um, relationships with dealers and actually meet artists and so forth, so that it becomes um, uh, a very important part of the process in the secondary market of of, of selling of course um, um, and I think that's something which the galleries hopefully will be able to survive temporarily but of course I think again the the answer lies there in in the question on how um, how temporary this this uh, the downturn will be in the art market um, obviously there will be some changes and there has been a huge rush online and that we have seen this, as you as you refer to, non-physical dealing in that respect um, for those people who are, are already have good relationships with their dealers and there's trust there. comes back to the old um, saying of, you know, trust and transparency. But if there's trust in uh, between the uh, the buyers and the dealers um, and they feel strongly um, they have a good relationship with their dealers and can trust them, then they'll be much more willing to move online, which we may also see then an older generation also being a little bit more willing to perhaps move online post uh, uh, post the coronavirus pandemic um, because they've become actually a bit more accustomed to having to do more online than they had done in the past. So that may be one change, actually. But again, it depends on how long, how long then this... Uh, this 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 is going to pan out here in in Europe and also I think predominantly in the the effect in the US which could you know, obviously be um, massive. Yeah, I mean one of the things that's that's interesting about what you just said there is that in a sense the 
buying and selling that happens at the fairs, the actual transactions that happen happen at fairs are only a sort of, maybe not tip of the iceberg, but certainly only a percentage of the kind of selling networks that happen relating to a fair. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's an opportunity to obviously promote the um, the dealers and meet new new clients. So, unfortunately, that aspect of, of meeting new clients will um, um, will will have disappeared with the fairs being temporarily closed or you know postponed in in this respect. Um, we when when we had a, a recent survey to dealers, we noticed also that um, they suggested on average <laughs> that they um, they meet fifty percent um, new clients each each year, um, which they require in order to be able to you know make a turnover. So that aspect of their business, and it's always been one of the top. The, the top concern that they have is meeting new clients um, is going to be curtailed um, enormously. So it's looking at how you can use the online space over the next year in order to be able to um, to reach new clients um, will be will I will I think be one of the most important <laughs> determinants in in seeing how healthy the art market actually then stays. You mentioned the US there, Rachel. Uh, listeners may not know the extent to which the US is the dominant market in in the art market um can you can you, can you explain how dominant it is but also to what extent an extended period of lockdown in the states would skew the market in a very particular way yeah absolutely um the US is of course the um has traditionally been the largest seller in auction markets um and 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 galleries um historically um since we've been uh, been able to collect data on on auction markets and we see that that the number of sales of course in the uh, the US anyway went down dramatically last year and it seems to be the case that the US is moving much more slowly um uh, out of uh, the the pandemic just because of the the way that the crisis has been handled and of course because of the very dense population um, at the moment, the hotspots, New York, um, and moving to other other bigger cities, and with that being <laughs> the most important or one of the most important cities in the art market in in the U.S., then of course it depends just how 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 long this pandemic is really going to play out in the U.S. If it's only a matter of a, a few weeks, then of course um, it won't have such a, a great impact. But it's very very likely that this is going to play out over a number of months. Um, and move into into next year as well, which will be very detrimental, therefore, for the art market um, uh, in the US. And I think this also plays also into the movement that's happened already towards the towards Asia in more generally. Um, if you look at the trade figures for art markets, you see that um, that there's always an, a large number of imports into Asia and exports traditionally out of Europe and and the US more generally, and particularly obviously into Hong Kong, going through into into China. So I think there's two things at play here. If we've got any way, you know, the time before Corona, we're having a trend towards the East. Um, it will depend how quickly Asia reverts to normal, which seems at the moment to be happening much faster. Um, just because of their more authoritarian regimes, and they've been able to curtail the 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 virus more quickly 
um, than is, has been the case, obviously, in not just in Europe, but here, um, as we're speaking about the, the US. So I think it's very likely to have some um, large global impacts um, as well. That's really interesting. So do you think we might see a, a situation where uh, sales that were expected to happen in certain parts of the world will be moved to the parts of the world where the virus has been curtailed more than others. So e.g. we we have a something that might be set for America, which will come to Europe once Europe is sort of out of the worst uh, extremes of the virus. It could be. I mean, it could certainly be the case that, you know, Hong Kong picks up again then quickly, relatively, and then the, the sales that they obviously missed out on um, uh, recently, also with Art Basel then being cancelled um, and the auction house sales um, not happening means that that could well indeed be the case, um, just in order to keep the global market then then going. Right. So uh, I'm interested now in talking about the secondary market, because obviously once, um, you know, and, and we hope it will be very soon, the we are we are beyond the worst of this. Um there is expected to be a global recession and is the effect of recession that secondary markets enter a period of paralysis because there's just that much less cash about yeah i think i mean that the, uh, the word cash is really important so i mean it's it's basically um uh, for for galleries or dealers um uh, who don't have enough cash and their cash flow is their <laughs> often their issue. Unfortunately, this lack of liquidity, which is very typical actually of any art market downturn, um, um, will will really be um, detrimental to the smaller size galleries where they where they where they anyway um, have very low margins um, and they don't they they don't often make a profit if they make a profit at all. It's our um, understanding from looking at the data on galleries and dealers in particular that it's the smaller dealers who will really suffer in this type of period. So I think it depends really if they if they own their own stock, for example, if they're able then to 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 be able to sell that during these times. Um, um, and just just if we can manage to keep the volume going in um, using other types of um, channels, as it were, the online channel rather than the more traditional channel at this at this period, so that they can actually um, maintain some form of stability and not enter this paralysis, as you actually uh, referred to here as well. Is there a pattern for how the art market recovers from crises? I mean, um, it's my perception, maybe you might correct me on this, that the art market recovered from the global financial crisis better than other industries did. Um, so. You know, obviously, we are we we are fully expecting this to be a, a recession that sh- which may be much worse even than that recession. But does the art market have particular sort of parameters that allow it to recover more quickly than other industries? Yes, the art market is quite interesting in that respect um, because it's a market that, uh, unless you're really forced to sell, then of course, even during a, a downturn or a period of recession, then you're 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 not likely to put up your your artworks for sale unless you're really forced to or you have to. So of course, it comes down to being um, a lot less volume occurring during uh, times of recession. It's another form of liquidity, as it were. Um, so what happens when the market starts to pick up again is that actually then things are, are then put back up for sale on the market. And because you don't necessarily always um, haven't reached that very those very low price points everywhere because you're not necessarily forced to have to sell, sell things, um, then it, it looks as though that the 
the, the art market is actually resilient to a downturn when in fact it's just the case that you haven't had a lot of sales um, because you're not forced to have these sales. So it does appear always that um, following uh, a crisis that the, the art market then does tend to um, look like it recovers actually quite well and and as you say perhaps better than you may predict yeah yeah i mean is, do you think there's anything that needs to be done by governments etc to stimulate a quick recovery this time is there anything that um economies can do which will um which will help that process that which, which will create the conditions which help that well i think this time is really quite serious just because you have so many um smaller galleries not necessarily being able to obtain the funding um, as a um, as a small business to be able to pay their staff or even pay themselves um, so unfortunately it's likely that we see a lot of closures at the at the the bottom end of the market um, for galleries and obviously this is not just the art market but this is probably going to happen across um, and we're seeing it already occurring um, with a lot of people losing their jobs um, and and filing for, un, uh, for employment benefit going up um, across obviously the UK but also in the US we've seen dramatic increase in the number of um, unemployed um, so I think that's going to be something sadly where unless the government will really step in and help the creative industries more generally um, uh, than the art market will suffer in this in the secondary market for for galleries and dealers and and likewise also for you know not to forget the artists and the grassroots of of the art market if they're not getting if artists aren't getting support um, to be able to, um, uh, to and are actually self-isolating either in their studios which is often the case at the moment so they can actually try and continue with their practice um, or if they're unable to um, uh, visit their studios because of the self-isolation and there's no support at art schools and so forth with things moving online. And it's obviously something which is very important that there's a, a physical um, uh, relationship between teachers and, and, and art students as well. And, and so the, this is obviously going to play out in the long term um, globally with having had um, this disruption at the grass grassroots level as well. Yeah, I mean it's interesting that the gra the the in a way uh, one of the things I think that we will be seeing over the coming months is to what extent there are multiple art worlds because I think you're absolutely right. I think you know it seems very urgent that lots of people at the grassroots end of this of the art world are really really struggling. But of course we're used to seeing. Um, the upper end of the art market relating to to corporations and high net worth individuals and all that kind of stuff. So I suppose um, could we see um, in a, a, a sort of almost the worst case scenario happening here, which is that which is that the sort of the grassroots, as you say, um, and the, and the sort of the bit that really is the sort of most energetic part of the art world to a certain degree, where new art is made, new and 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 eventually that trickles up, as it were, through up to the upper echelons of the art market, is is massively affected. But you know the kind of um, multi-million pound sales on the, the sort of high end of the market is less affected yeah I, I actually think you'll you'll find both ends then contracting so I think you'll find the top end of the market contracting because um, um, even high net worth individuals are, will be reluctant to buy such at such uh, high levels during um, such a crisis when they feel perhaps their money would be um, um, 
more useful elsewhere, but but definitely at the bottom end of the market through its level um, um, in the sense that um, artists are, um, are squeezed and perhaps out of their practice. Um, it's interesting also, though, there's new energy and initiatives to be able to be more creative in this in this space. Um, um, but of course, it depends if there's enough funding around to to, to facilitate that. Um, so I think that's really well. It's largely a political question at the moment. Um, some countries have have done a better job at being able to try and support the arts at this period of in time, just because it's such a high number of um, self-employed people in in that area. Yeah. Um, how crucial to the art market's buoyancy is its international scope because it seems to me that that that's been fundamental to this extraordinary exponential rise in the art market and it seems also that some of those networks might be under threat the inter- you know we've seen every airline across the world massively you know basically stop we've seen that sort of international exchange which has been so crucial to recent decades come to a halt is it is it crucial for the the health of the art market going forward that that basically is resurrected very quickly and and very fully? Um, I'm not so sure if it necessarily has to happen immediately. I think with all um, you know crises in society, be the be they economic or in this case a health crisis, um, it's often the catalyst for change more more broadly. And this seems to appear already that there's a, obviously a focus much more on you know national level or um, even a much more local level. And that's perhaps something that we've seen um, from community building and community spirit, um, but also for artists in general, people getting to know um, each other uh, more um, more specifically within within their own community and perhaps wanting to take care of those more in their own community. So it's um, hopefully in that respect a, a catalyst for change that there is this focus also on on the local and that may that may then invigorate a, a more interesting dialogue uh, for later, where it grows again to be more more global, so that we end up with more interesting or different um, uh, types of artwork developing within within the market as well. Well, Rachel, it's a very uncertain moment, but thanks for giving us some clarity and, and um, continue to stay well. Yeah, thank you very much, Ben. Now for the latest in our series, Lonely Works, in which we focus on artworks in museums that are closed because of COVID-19. This week, I spoke to the artist Sean Scully, and the work we discuss is Henri Matisse's The Moroccans, a painting from 1915 to 16 in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. It's one of Matisse's most complex paintings, which he said depicted the terrace of the little cafe of the Casbah in Tangier. It's divided into three sections. At the upper left, a balcony with a flower pot and the dome of a mosque. At bottom left, a still life of what looks like melons and leaves. And at the right, a scene with an Arab with a turban who sits with his back to us. Beyond him is an archway with two windows with figures above. Sean Scully travelled to Morocco four times in his early years as an artist and then followed in Matisse's footsteps there for a BBC TV series, Artist Journeys, in 1992. I spoke to him from his home in New York and you can see the painting as we discuss it at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the podcast link on the homepage and look for this episode. 
Now, Sean, I have to confess that with this work, I rather suggested it to you, but it is a painting I know is of enormous significance to you. It is. It is. And I, I think it I think it was perhaps more interesting to me when I made the film than it is now. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because in a sense, it's autobiographical, one, one's position. You know, one's position is, is what defines one's preferences. And I've veered to, more towards um, Picasso lately. But, um, you know, the Americans and the Colorfield painters are very largely responsible for um, the incredible position that Henri Matisse has because he wanted to set color free. And in this picture, you see him painting, not in situ, but after his return from Morocco. You know, it might be useful to say, tell people that he went to Morocco twice, 1912 and 1913. When, when he was painting in Tangier, you know, he made these paintings like... Um, the Riffian, because he was interested in the people that lived on the mountains, the Riff. And he painted there. And you see, you see when you look at Matisse's paintings, the ones that were made in Morocco, there's an incredible luminosity about them because he had escaped the mechanization of painting that Picasso, his arch rival, participated in so avidly even though Braque invented it. And when he comes back, he has to confront again World War I because he painted it right in the middle. That's right. Dreadful occurrence. And, of course, the Cubists. And in a sense, they go together because tanks running all over the countryside, ruining pastoral life, blowing everything up is a result, of course, of mechanization and the brutality of it. And the crisis of the object, the crisis of the belief in the object was um, explored by the twin prongs of Dadaism and Cubism. And as we all know, Matisse is the great idealist or wanted to make some kind of utopian sense of beauty and uh, peace and harmony and what you see in this painting is the opposite of that that's right it must be one of the toughest matisses to to get one's head around it's such an extraordinarily complex picture isn't it yeah and it's also labored over now matisse was a great instinctual painter he had an extraordinary facility with color. He was the great colorist. And he course, don't forget, you know, that he was the leader of uh, the Fauve movement at the turn of the century and a decade earlier with Braque and Vlamanque. And they were setting color free in relation to uh, the subject as the way, in the same way that jazz did later on mm. in relation to the melody. John Coltrane, for example, one of my favorites. And the painting, the Moroccans, and the piano lesson, which is also in the MoMA, are fraught paintings. They're both uncomfortable paintings because they were painted, as I said before, 
in the middle of a terrible situation where young boys were being slaughtered on the fields of Passchendaele and you can't take that out of what it is, of the, of the stress in the painting. I think that's very important. I mean, Matisse even mentions it in, an, in, I think, in a letter to Camoin where he talks about, you know, of course, my difficulties, you know, this is very much paraphrasing, but of course, my difficulties don't compare to what's going on in the war, but I am struggling, you know. He's, so, and he, he is, he's really grappling with massive issues, pictorial issues, issues of colour. And of course, he, you know, as you say, cubism was a massive gauntlet to to Matisse he he used the term cubes and the, the the criticism of cubism was based on right yeah and of course you know he had to be carrying guilt because there he is making art very close to where boys are being slaughtered and I think that reworking overworking very often is connected to personal guilt and, for example, on the right side of the painting, you see this guy wearing a turban. I've, I've stood in front of that painting and talked about it before, as you know, on film. That, looks as if, that turban looks as if it's made out of concrete. His, his, his facility to allow light to come through the color disappears entirely with this painting. This painting is labored over. The, the grid under, under the plants, bottom left of the painting, um, the vegetables, is, is broken up. So it's as if even the grid, this is, I think, psychologically very interesting, even the grid, which should be a platform of stability upon which you put things, upon which you organize things, is in a fight with its own let's say, grittiness. It doesn't know whether it wants to be a supporting grid or, a, or a, a grid that's having a nervous breakdown because of the situation. And also because of this crisis, terrible crisis of belief that brought about all this art that was tearing away at the sanctity of painting itself, which has gone on, of course, for a century. And you have all this, all this um, disbelief in the painting, this self-doubt in the painting, which we don't usually associate with Matisse. And what Matisse is doing in this painting is competing with Cubism, trying to make a great summation and doing it in the middle of a disaster. Exactly. Even the even the flowers on the balcony in front of the mosque at the back there, top left, mm. are reduced to geometric patterns, which is very, very unique in uh, Matisse's oeuvre. You know, he uses flowers beautifully, always indulges in their curves and their rhythm. You know, if you go to um, that beautiful chapel in um, Saint-Paul-de-Vence, you see how he uses plants to create rhythm. And these plants don't. They're reduced to circles with stripes all over them. So he's making a direct uh, re rebuttal in some way, compliance, of course, at the same time, 
to Cubism. The fact also that the painting is a paradigm of disunity is very interesting, especially when, when one thinks of Picasso's Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, where you've got the same pink and white stuff going on that's been put on later as an afterthought. So this issue of uh, breaking up the unity of things and then trying to unify it with what he called the queen of color, black, is again very interesting psychologically. And this, this, this painting is uh, a true um, psychiatrist conundrum. <laughs> Let's talk about let's talk about the black because one of the my favourite quotes from Matisse of all is this uh, statement he made where he's he's it's a, in a piece called Black is a Colour and he says isn't my isn't the black in my painting the Moroccans a luminous black and that's that, that sort of oxymoronic idea of a luminous black only a true master of colour and light can achieve that kind of power through using black and not deadening the work it, it 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 like you say how odd is it that he unifies a work using black and i'd also could you say something about as a painter what does black do in 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 a in a work is it is it is it the same as using other colors or or does it have have properties that you have to just separate from everything else well first of all i'd like to say that um matisse is um commenting now on his own work and one can also, um, if we treat him as a contemporary artist, or let's say, let's mistreat him as a contemporary artist, <laughs> that might be called hubris, because right. a luminous black is in fact, as you say, an oxymoron. And I use black a lot, of course. It's, I use it in nearly all my paintings. And I do use it as a color, and I, I, I suppose I'm relating in, in, in the way I use it to the, the, the depth in Spanish painting. And I'm not using it so much for its sense of luminosity. To me, this looks like utter night. I've always thought of this as a nighttime painting. So I don't see the black um, coming out of the painting. I see it as a negative and um, he's held, he's asking a negative to do the work of a positive, which is also very interesting because the, the black is working here like a marriage counselor, trying to hold these three separate entities together. He's run it through the painting. Let's talk a bit about uh, affiliations with Matisse because as you say, we, we, we we made this film in the artist journey series and I hope that we might be able to find it somewhere and tell people where it is. But this is a really interesting film where you essentially followed in Matisse's footsteps to Morocco. You had had also very, very important formative experiences in Morocco, which had massively affected your art. Can you say something about, about that journey? You know, um, did you, was Matisse on your mind when you first went to Morocco or was, or, or is it just a coincidence that later sort of um, came into being? Oh, no, Matisse was very much on my mind. I wrote my thesis on Matisse, on the dance, yeah. the, 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 the big ones, the ones that were uh, curved, that were meant to be painted for the Barnes Foundation. Mm. 
charming story about that, by the way. He measured it up wrong. <laughs> and that's why we have two versions, ah. one in Paris, Musée d'Art Moderne, Hôtel de la Ville. And the other one, of course, is in the Barnes Foundation. So luckily for us, you know, um, Matisse made the measurements wrong, so he had to make it again. And uh, as Paul Clay said, it's mistakes that make art. <laughs> and I, I'm a great lover of mistakes. For a, a long time, Morocco partly, I think, because of its um, close relationship with Spain, has had this bridge position between Islam and the West. And the influence of, of Morocco in Spain, of course, is very, very strong. They were there for 800 years. And the Spanish haven't denied that influence, and they've embraced it in their music, too. And you get an extraordinary sense of rhythm and a kind of universality of rhythm in Morocco that affected me profoundly. And it was almost as if I had found what I went looking for. And I'm pretty sure that for Matisse, it was kind of the same, you know. He made that famous donkey ride down to Tetuan. Tetuan's a pretty rough place. It appears in the film, you know, that I made. We went on a on a coach ride down there, and that was long enough. And I don't know how you feel in the lower back after you arrive in <laughs> Tetuan on a donkey. Anyway, so he wanted to go into the true Morocco. You know, he might have painted in Tangier. He made that beautiful painting of St. Andrew's Church from the hotel window which again I visited in the film but he wanted to get us a kind of universal truth that is still preserved in some of these cultures that we are losing in to make obviously another truth but that truth that we had with the land is something that's endangered and that's why he went there and it's also why I went there and in fact I was wearing at the end of Jalava, which is a robe, and I was sleeping on the ground outside. And I, I, I just adored it. It affected me in body and soul. That's a great note to end on. Sean, thanks so much for talking about this extraordinary picture. It's been a great pleasure, as always, Ben. You can find out more about the Moroccans on the Museum of Modern Art's website at moma.org and you can watch Sean Scully's Artist Journeys episode following Matisse on YouTube. Search for the Sean Scully Studio page. Still to come, we discuss how galleries of various kinds are responding to the coronavirus crisis. But first, here are a few of the top stories on the art newspaper website. The art newspaper has seen a publication on Leonardo da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi, which the Louvre printed and then withdrew days before the opening of its Leonardo exhibition last October. At least one copy of the 45-page book, containing new detailed scientific analysis of the painting, was inadvertently sold at the museum's bookshop. A Louvre spokesperson confirmed that the book was put together in case the Louvre got the chance to present the painting in the exhibition, but of course the painting never made it to Paris. 
The museum's stated policy, according to a spokesperson, is not to comment on a work in a private collection if the work isn't on display in one of its exhibitions. But, crucially, the book's authors, including the curator of the Louvre exhibition, Vincent de Leuven, come down in favour of the painting being an autograph work by Leonardo. Thieves broke into the Singer Laren Museum in the Netherlands and stole a painting by Vincent van Gogh in the early hours of the 30th of March, what would have been the artist's 167th birthday. The museum in the northern Dutch town of Laren has been closed for several days because of the coronavirus shutdown. The stolen painting, the Parsonage Garden at Neunen in spring, made in 1884, was on loan from the nearby Groningen Museum in Groningen. And finally, a bit of good news. The public appeal, launched by the UK's Art Fund to save the artist and filmmaker Derek Jarman's home and garden in Dungeness, Kent, southern England, has reached its £3.5 million target. The campaign to save Prospect Cottage, which was at risk of being sold privately, having its contents dispersed and its artistic legacy lost, was launched late in January. More than 7,700 donors gave to the appeal, ensuring that this very special house and garden has been saved in the form that Jarman carefully nurtured it before his death in 1994. You can read all these stories and, of course, all the latest on the art world effects of the coronavirus at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. With over 250 years of auctions, Christie's leads the art world with live and online sales in more than 80 categories. Christie's private sales allow for buying or selling fine art, decorative objects, jewellery and watches, all on your schedule. Art anytime. Explore more on christies.com. Welcome back. Now, as I said, this week the art newspaper's reporters have been investigating the ongoing effects and possible future implications of the coronavirus for the art market. Among those writers are our market editors, Anna Brady, currently in lockdown in Northamptonshire in England, and Margaret Carrigan, who's in New York. And they join me now to tell me what they've been finding out. Anna, hello. Hi, Ben. And Margaret, hello. Hi. So um, both of you have written sort of long reads this week, which both concern the sort of perilous position of the art market. Let's begin with you, Anna. Tell me what you uh, investigated. So I spoke to um, some of the bigger um, art galleries like um, Mark Glimter at Pace and Ivanworth at Hausenworth and also some of the shippers and insurers and lawyers and economists within this field to try and get a kind of um, bird's eye view of what was really going on in the business Um and what we concluded really is that all of those people, I mean, nobody really knows how the next few months are going to play out, um, but all agreed that this is utterly unprecedented when it comes, um, well, generally the situation, but also within the art market. Um, so, you know, it's not very often that you get people like Mark Limpshire or Ivan Verster to say, I don't, I just don't really know what is going to happen, but it's pretty terrible. Um but so everyone's really kind of gone into lockdown, obviously hunkering down, trying to do what they can in terms of all these online initiatives, like the viewing rooms that we're seeing. Um, there seemed to be an initial rash of activity um, when we first went into lockdown about two weeks ago with a lot of launches of these online things. But um, now that's sort of quietened down a little bit. Um, and I think people are sort of waiting to see how they work and how long we're going to be stuck in this situation. So it's definitely sort of, it, it's interesting seeing it kind of play out in phases as well um, in terms of its impact on people. 
I mean, I was, I was sort of really interested that, that so many people seemed quite discursive in your piece, if you know what I mean. There was lots of, as you say, there aren't any hard and fast answers, but it seems to me that the art market and people within it are trying to um, search for solutions and want there to be a kind of dialogue. I mean, that, that, that sort of helped your piece in a way that you, you know, that you have this sort of discursive feel about the way people are feeling. Yeah, it's quite unusual. And it's sort of, I think it's quite hard to write pieces at the moment in any other sort of style. People, as you say, people, people have got a lot more time to talk to you as well at the moment. And I think there's, there seems to be a, a need at all levels of the business to actually talk about it a lot. Um, and obviously, a lot of people are sitting at home on their own or just with a couple of other people. And I, they're missing that kind of normal social interaction. So I think a lot of people are kind of just wanting to talk it through as a phenomenon as well um so so yeah as you say it kind of lent quite a different um tone to that article one of the one of the things i sort of noted from it was that it's clear that a lot of the technologies that have been being developed over many years are just still on the periphery of the general activity of galleries in the sense that, yes, there have been digital offers. We've had online viewing rooms and that's being been sort of augmented all the time. But still, it's still relatively uncharted territory that, you know, businesses don't know how well they can survive for the moment just through those mechanisms. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think the thing is, that we've never had to rely on them before. Now that's the only option. They've been a kind of a jazzy sort of added extra. Um, and yes, they've been important in terms of a, a, representing a growing proportion of the market and, and gallery sales. But we haven't just had them as the only option. So now it's really kind of starting to show who's got the more sophisticated digital setups. And people are really having to accelerate as well their um, innovation in that field. So that is what what is coming through. You know, this, these sorts of crises often necessitate a, um, acceleration in terms of innovation and um, technology. And as as we are all experienced, you know, talking on on Skype now, um, a total change in working practice as well, and uh, and um, workplace culture too, which I think is probably one of the most interesting things about about this. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you know basically. Um... There is a there is a feeling that this has to change the extent to which it is going to be much more online from here. That, as you say, there's there's an acceleration, it, it, the innovation increases, and there's a sort of um, an acceptance that this has to be an absolutely crucial part of the way things go from now on. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely acceptance of that, and I think I think we definitely will sort of live more online after this and, and more business will be done online I don't know that that's going to totally take over I think we will definitely kind of fall back on on old habits and and you know the physical sort of the human aspect of the art market has always been so important and I definitely think we'll go back to that but it'll be interesting to see how that comes back in there in terms of I think we're all going to need a certain amount of reintegration as well into into the um, fast pace of the sort of fairs world and the and the art market that we've got used to and I think that's going to be kind of interesting just how we kind of all adapt back into that because I think a lot of people are probably going to feel a little bit um, unnerved by being put into say a crowded art fair or private view or something it's funny how fast um, the very concept of that feels quite alien. That's right. And and it, it was interesting to me that Rachel in the earlier interview talked about these other 
form networks that that are part of the whole fair ecosystem so yes you've got the buying and selling up front but then the fairs also create a sort of reproduction of of um networks so more and more networks emerge from that sort of social gathering and that's an that's a, i think a really interesting point isn't it and, and again you you know that the social aspect of the fairs and the, the art market generally means that so much business derives from that whereas actually now we're forced into a situation where that is being questioned yeah, quite. I mean, it's going to be very interesting, the impact that that has. Everyone always says that relationships are so important in this industry and, and trust is very important as well. And obviously that trust is normally sort of built upon um, face-to-face um, contact and, and really getting to know people, whether it's a gallery that you always buy from, the advisor that you always use, um, an auction house specialist that you know particularly well. So all of those relationships are being quite sort of tested now um and you know you wonder how how easily we will go back to them and that is definitely the thing that's lost in this online world that we're that we're living on and living in i mean in terms of how many sales are actually done at, at, at fairs it's it's always been a big question i mean nobody it's very hard to sort of truly judge that claire mccandry says in her report that um respondents to their survey survey say about 45% of their sales are done sort of through fairs, even if not necessarily at them. But, um, you know, that that can vary from business to business. Like a TAFAF gallery that I spoke to um, says that they do about um, like half of their sales really at at art fairs and most of those at TAFAF Masteroaks. And then a gallery like Pace or House and Worth, both of them said it's sort of between about... 10 to sort of 15 percent of their sales that they will do at art fairs so i think it can vary a lot depending on on your business so quantifying the impact of not having these physical events in terms of the sales is quite difficult but i think that we can safely say that not having events as far as relationships go is is quite damaging now margaret you've been focusing much more on a, on an end of the market that I think we could agree is much more precarious, which is younger galleries, galleries um, who aren't so well established, whose turnover is smaller. And you focus particularly on the rent side of it, because this is a massive issue in the New York art scene, isn't it? Yeah, well, rent is always an issue in New York. <laughs> um, and and all the more so now. Um, the, the galleries that I've been speaking to here in New York, I, basically, just to recap on a broad level, is that there is a proposed rent strike, um, not just in New York, but in several large cities across the U.S. right now. Um, but in New York specifically, it's kind of grown out of this um, this critical mass moment where so many small businesses have been forced to shutter and and are still being expected to pay rent, while um, homeowner homeowners and um, building owners have been given a mortgage break for the next ninety days, and so. This has become um, a big sticking point for a lot of small galleries who say, I just can't make it 90 days of not knowing where my income is coming from. Like maybe I make April rent, but that's all the money I have. And if so-and-so doesn't buy the painting they said they were going to buy at Armory, you know, like then I don't have any foreseeable income for the next several months. And, and, you know, as we know, a lot of that does happen, you know, collectors delay payments or don't pay up front immediately. And, and so there's this kind of suspended animation that so many of these small galleries are finding and they don't, like Anna was saying, like no one really knows what the next step is and no one knows what the 
next week even holds. So how are they meant to financially plan? Um, so without the, there, there's supposed to be a vote this week um, in the state legislature about whether or not there is going to be some kind of rent relief for smaller businesses and individuals. Um, but un- until then, most of these galleries can't make plans and are flat up saying, well, we, are, we don't want to pay rent. We do want to strike because if we don't, we really won't be here by the time this is all over. And that's really interesting. And again, it comes through, you know, we talked about uncertainty in the, in the context of Anna's piece. You know, what's really interesting is that the people in your piece are telling you, you know, I, you know I've got a good relationship with, with my landlord or some people don't know their landlords or whatever, but, but they're, you know, they're, they're looking at their financial future and they are simply unable to, to know what to do in this circumstance do they take part in the strike do they um will there be help for them around the corner but or 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 will they be marooned and left with vast amounts to pay in a few months time yeah exactly and and the other the other piece to this is is that um and this is something that the new art dealers alliance um has pushed really heavily on is that a lot of the small business initiatives that are happening here in the U.S. and in, in New York State specifically um, will apply to galleries of a certain size, but for so many of smaller galleries who can't prove, you know, um, revenue losses of up to twenty five percent because their revenue is so intermittent already, or they don't have any staff, so they can't prove that they've had to lay anybody off, they won't be able to apply for these relief initiatives. So. While mid-size and, and, of course, larger galleries will be able to reap the benefits of other small business relief funds right now and, and um, small business loans, these smaller galleries that, that are really just operating out of tiny storefronts can't pay rent and can't get any relief funds. So it's it's going to change the landscape of New York's gallery scene, especially its emerging ga- gallery, emerging artist scene, really heavily, I think, in the next six months to a year. It'll be a knock-on effect for a really long time. That, that's that's a really interesting um, perspective, isn't it? Because and, and it's also in a piece that Annie Shaw wrote for the art newspaper uh, this week, which is about London's younger galleries, because um, uh, one of the most difficult aspects of the uh, the sort of um, more precarious in younger galleries is that they they are obviously responsible for a roster of artists, but they cannot just guarantee that they continue to can continue to pay them and also ensure the su- survival of their galleries. Yes, yeah, I mean it's it's again felt um, soonest and and uh, most harshly on the smaller businesses. Um, as you say, they don't have much of a sort of buff financial buffer to fall back on like the larger galleries too and and Annie spoke to quite a lot of the smaller London galleries um on the plus side they think that they're often able to be more nimble and they don't have enormous overheads but again it's sort of how long this will continue for um because you know they can't live indefinitely in in lockdown with um defunct spaces that they're still paying hefty rents on um like in the US there are some um there are some initiatives from the government being introduced to help smaller firms like business rates being scrapped for up to 12 months um VAT payments being um deferred until the end of the year and also these 10,000 pound grants um for smaller businesses but i think um already in sort of the practical side of this is proving prob- problematic you know with people not being able to get hold of these grants and people just not being quite sure how the rules um, work out, landlords included as well. Um, so I know that there are some in the in the UK and London as well uh, who are lobbying um, their landlords 
to have rent holidays as well so that they can hopefully continue to exist once this is once this is all over but as you say it's a big worry for them and it, it will knock on quickly to their to their artists as well who they want to be able to carry on um supporting and those artists um it, it's not a very conducive environment to making work at the moment if you're consciously anxious about um you know your own livelihood I think too when you're when we're looking at these small galleries, as Anna said, that that same piece that um, that Annie wrote, um, Will Jarvis of the Sunday Painter in Vauxhall in London, said, you know, it's a 20th century model existing in the 21st century, and and that kind of points back to what Anna was saying earlier about the need for innovation right now and, and what we can be doing with this time essentially, um, and I, I think that that is something we need to examine really closely when it comes to smaller galleries uh, and, and how they support artists and how they feed the art ecosystem, essentially. Um, we've known for a long time that the art market is, you know, it, it tends to gobble up these smaller galleries, the artists they represent, and they just kind of get pushed through the system towards the top end. And that top end has a lot of insulation comparatively right now to the, to the emerging end. And, um, when we're, when we're thinking about what that innovation can look like, you know, even when we're pushing everything online, like we were speaking about earlier, what what's kind of um, crucial for smaller galleries is that, you know, they don't have the same resources to um, online platforms or because they don't, that, that networking aspect of the art world that has been so fundamental to how business is conducted over the past century, essentially, um, they don't have the visibility online. People aren't going to know to search for their gallery. It's not the same as just when you're on an online viewing platform, it's not the same as popping by a booth and just something catching your eye. You have to physically click things, you know? It's a choice that people are gonna have to make. So those networks become even more important. And I think some of those will get erased as things kind of migrate over to the online sphere. Um, And then beyond that, you know, when and Georgina Adam wrote about this uh, for us as well this week that, even when things do maybe go back to IRL events and, and, and more fairs kind of institute themselves, like Anna said, the, the, the feeling will be different. And whether people want to go to those as much will be a whole other question. And, and a lot of those fairs, we might see a lot of consolidation across the board. Some of them might not be able to come back or we'll have to do partnerships with other things. And then so that's just funneling things more towards a few big players, um, whether that's a fair group or a larger gallery or anything. And so that it's not just um, what galleries are faces facing in the next three months. It's what they're facing in the next three years, in the next like decade, really after this, um, and, and what this kind of weird period of suspension might mean for that. Um, in the long term and in the supply chain of art. That's a really interesting point, Maggie, actually. I mean, in terms of the in terms of the speed with which some of these larger galleries, I'm thinking of, you know, the larger contemporary art galleries like, say, Hauser and Worth and um, and Pace and David Zwerner, they're, they're three that really spring to mind, that they managed to launch these really quite sophisticated online initiatives. But, but actually what really came through in all of their cases was the fact that this is where their content teams, which they've been building over the past few years, are really coming into play as well. You know, they've already got these podcasts and they've already got, say, in-house magazines that they're suddenly able to make digital and put online line and available for free as well. 
and it's quite interesting to see those content, uh, all that content sort of coming in, really coming into play now because it returns to what we were talking about, this need for conversation as well right now. And that's really helping their sort of brands to keep alive and helping them to be in touch with with their clients and a wider audience as well. And and unfortunately, you know, that's just not something that smaller operations can afford to have. So, Margaret, that it's really interesting what you say about the sort of the idea of this sort of a twentieth century model in a tw- in the twenty first century. What do you do you know, or has anybody uh, suggested to you what a twenty first century model might look like? Because surely that's that's key, isn't it? If we if we're to emerge from this, um, and with with a with a sort of solid and um, creative grassroots gallery system, are they going to need to shift? Are they going to need to be more connections to public institutions for instance i can't take credit for those words unfortunately that was that was will jarvis but i i do agree with the sentiment wholeheartedly and i do think it's a topic of conversation that's been going around for quite a long time in the art world um about how everything has kind of been based on a a 19th century retail model um and uh I don't know that we have the answer yet. And I think that I do think that there are proposals and I, and I wouldn't want to speak to those authoritatively without doing more research or speaking to people that are actually trying to pioneer those. I don't think that those are embodied in things like the online sales platforms that we know exist already. I will. I, that's my personal opinion. I think ultimately those are digital recapitulations of the 20th century model. <laughs> so I think we really need to think about like you said, where support comes from. It, it, does it only come from galleries? Do institutions need to get more involved? How closely does that start to fly near a even more outdated patronage model? So there's a lot on the table to work with, per se, um, technologically speaking. It's just how we leverage those tools has to be different. And at, so far, I don't know that you know something like David Zwerner's online model is leveraging the tools any different. It's just migrating it online. Okay, well, thanks both of you for joining us today. And, and, and I think we're going to be writing and thinking about this very hard over the coming weeks. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. To read Anna and Margaret's stories and Annie Shaw's piece on London's younger galleries, visit theartnewspaper.com or the app. And that's it for this week. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage, and please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so, and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook, Instagram and Telegram. You can find the Telegram invite code at the top of our daily newsletters. The producers of The Week in Art are Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David's also the editor. Thanks to Rachel, Sean, Anna and Margaret, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.